Hello and welcome to another episode of the Arena Craft Podcast, a show dedicated exclusively to Magic the Gathering Arena. I am one of your hosts, Arjuna. I'm joined today by one of our other hosts, one of our many hosts, but you know, the the, the only real other host, the one and best of one, it's Kobar Goblu. How are you doing today, CGB? Hi, it's the one in the co-hosting <laughs> duties here on the Arena. Uh, podcast. <laughs> Many have challenged, but only one rose to the top to ride shotgun week after week. It is Kova Goblu. Just defeated them all with my ability to show up, hit record reliably. <laughs> you know, as we're talking, I'm seeing in the background of Kova Goblu's setup, he's got like this big sheet with Nicol Bolas on it. Mm-hmm. And right next to it, this Christmas tree with like a Nazgul perched on top. That is Rodan. This is a Godzilla-themed <laughs> okay. Christmas tree. Okay, there, there is, you go. You, you can, it's hard to see, but in the middle, there's a, a plush Godzilla. You can see kind of the red mouth and the claws. Oh, yeah. And there's baby. a King King Ghidra behind my chair. But there's also a bunch of smaller Godzilla action figures you can't really make out. Yeah, it's a Godzilla-themed Christmas tree my wife put in the office. Yeah, this this is just about the most CGB thing I can imagine right here. So she she did awesome. I was terrified. I've never let my wife decorate my office in <laughs> in all our years together. Man, covert go partner coming through, dude. Love it. Indeed. Love it. Well, uh speaking of coming through, we have a fun level up episode for you today, the first of its kind on the show. I mean, I would like to think that every one of our episodes is some kind of a level up episode because we're just that good. But in actual fact, this is the first time that we're really focusing on deep diving into a concept to help you specifically get better at the theoretical side of Magic Arena. So we're gonna cover that. Um, first, another, another kind of coming through. This is episode 52 of the official weekly releases of the podcast. Lord knows how many random bonus episodes I've made you suffer through. But what that means is that next episode, we celebrate the year anniversary of the Arena Craft Podcast, which is a pretty... Yay. Yeah, right? It's it's a pretty Yay. big event, considering the Yay. fact that... <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to need some kind of WWE to go down here, you know? Mm-hmm. But it's it's a pretty big deal considering the fact that most podcasts die, you know, anywhere from two to seven episodes in. So yep. we've beat the odds and not only beat the odds, but smashed the odds by having this wonderful audience of amazing people who show up week after week to listen. This show has definitely exceeded my expectations of where it was going to go in the first year. Um, we're, we're hovering right around that 100k downloads metric on our whoa yeah dude i didn't know that isn't that sweet 100k downloads that's insane it's a lot of downloads right and and that's not counting the views on youtube so including all of you wonderful youtube viewers we've already had well over a hundred thousand episodes listened of the arena craft podcast which is pretty special so in order to celebrate this momentous occasion covert go blue and i have decided to do a special episode, and this episode is going to be, 
You guessed it. An AMA. Ask Arjuna anything. Ask Arjuna anything. <laughs> Only ask CGB questions that make him look good. All right? <laughs> are, we, are we clear? I, no, 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 no. Okay. Okay. I, I, that was just a joke. I will play along. I am being dragged somewhat kicking and screaming into this because anybody who watches my my Twitch knows that I get really burnt out on answering the same questions over and over. So I'm getting dragged into this a little a little kicky and screamy, but I've never done one in podcast form. So I'm optimistic that the questions will be big-brained, high IQ, high-minded, and fun to answer and interesting. I, I have faith. I have faith in the podcast community. So here's what you're going to do, all right? You're going to think of a question for CGB. Or Arjuna. Real long and hard, all right? And then whatever it is, you're going to dumpster it, all right? You're going to put it in the trash. You're going to pour lighter fluid on it, send it up in a ball of smoke. And then you're going to come up with another question, which is even better. That's the question you're going to ask, all right? <laughs> so okay, we're, look okay. we're looking for next level questions here all right we're not yeah, looking yeah. for like cgb how do i play standard we're not looking for arjuna what's the best draft common in zendikar rising limited we want next level questions all right we want galaxy brain questions we want questions where like once we're dead like people on vh1 interviewing you are going to be like what's the dopest thing that Arjuna ever said to you? And you're going to be like, I asked this question once on the Arena Craft podcast, and it was epic, okay? So that, that that's the level of question that we're talking about here, okay? Next level questions. The, the forum in which you're going to ask these questions is the Arena Craft Discord server. You can find a link for that in the show notes, and we are going to have a little channel. It's going to be called... Uh, what am I going to call it? Yeah, Arena anniversary. Craft anniversary giga brain questions. <laughs> giga brain questions, all right? So you're going to go in there and you're going to post your questions. If you happen to be someone born before the year 120 AD, you can also send an email to arenacraftpod at gmail.com, all right? So that's giving you an out if you're one of these people who's like, I don't use Discord because wah, all right? So you can also email us, but go to the Discord, sign in, make an account. Trust me, it's worth it. Come to the ArenaCraft Discord and leave your questions and we will answer them on air. And we may have some other fun stuff as well. Now, since we do have quite the YouTube audience, can we clarify, are you taking questions in comments? You know, in the YouTube I, was, comments. I was thinking about like offering that, but to be honest, uh, what's the English phrase? I can't be asked. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So, because you have to be really clear, because I don't know how many times I've said, you can send me questions on my Twitch show and people leave 500 questions on my YouTube comments. You gotta be, you gotta yeah. spell it out. We're not taking questions from there. All right, YouTube is going to YouTube. If you feel like posting comments on YouTube, I can't stop you. I just can't guarantee they're going to make it onto the show. All right? Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, for starters, if you want to leave a question via YouTube, leave them on the right episode. All right? Let's, 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 <laughs> let's start with that one. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going back through the catalog, all right? Maybe if you're wise enough to pick the right video and, and leave a comment in the right place, maybe. All right? If only you could see this. This man knows. This man knows. He's been there. <laughs> I've seen things. He's seen it all. 
Okay, so I think that that's that's enough uh, congratulatory back slapping for one episode. We'll probably do more of it, but you know, at least we drew a line in the sand, right, CGB? Yes. Okay, so now let's get into our level up episode. Now this was born somewhat coincidentally out of Covert Go Blue and I commiserating over some of the, shall we say, inventive questions that people have asked us during our streams and and in various other venues while we were playing the game of Magic the Gathering. And I think that this is kind of, as a content creator, one of the things that you have to do is you have to pay attention for like the squeaky wheels, okay? Because, you know, people like to learn all kinds of stuff about Magic, but there are these consistent themes that keep coming up time and time again that really make you think, wow, I think that there are a lot of people out there who need this information. So um, one of these such topics that came up for me, uh, which I know that CGB deals with probably every day of his life, is the topic of which cards to include in your deck and why. Now, we're not, we're not going to do like a specific overview of the whole concept because that's like a really, really massive topic. But what we're specifically talking about is a scenario like this. And I'm sure that C this happens to CGB all the time, right? CGB's playing on the ladder. Someone resolves, let's say, an Ugin against him, okay? And immediately someone pops into the chat saying, CGB, why aren't you running X card in order to ensure that you never, ever have to deal with a resolved Ugin ever again in your life, right? Sure. Okay, yeah. now I'm sure that a lot a lot of different thoughts go through your mind when this happens, CGB. But I think the the exasperated and or busy streamer will probably just say something like, it's just not good in my deck. It's not worth a slot. My sideboard's already full. Etc. 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 Whatever it is, right? So you hear this all the time of streamers being like, basically like, I'm not going to do that, and I don't really feel like writing a book to explain my decision-making process. So what we're going to try to do on this episode is to write a little bit of that book and to go a little bit more in-depth on why you do or don't make the decisions you do to put specific metagame cards in your deck. So that's, that's the broad-level topic. We're going to take you through some examples, okay? And the first example that I have, I think, uh, is a very, very basic one, and it's going to illustrate the point very, very simply. And then uh, I have a feeling that some of CGB's examples will be a little bit more pinky-out, sophisticated examples. <laughs> Maybe. So we can, we can get, the, I, get the full the pinky spectrum is ready. Covered. All right, all right. Pinky <clears throat> is ready. So, CGB, I was playing in a best-of-three matchup, in the limited format. And I was playing Zendikar Rising. I, I know, I know a format you, you know a great deal about, but I, I, think, that, I think that you'll be able to comprehend. <laughs> I think you'll be able to comprehend the concepts here, right? Okay. Okay, so I'm playing a deck, and you know, most limited decks are these kind of like mid-rangey creature piles with a slant towards some are a bit more aggro, some are a bit more late game. But I'm just in like a normal limited matchup, right? So my deck is like some pile of, I think I was on maybe like, um, let's say I was on an Azorius party deck, okay? So I just have a bunch of creatures. My opponent has a bunch of creatures. 
And in game one, my opponent resolves a Legion Angel against me, fetching up nothing because this is limited. So this is a 4-3 flyer for four, which, you know, is a pretty good threat in limited. They proceed, it was a close game, but they proceed to beat me down with it and win the game on the back of this Legion Angel, okay? So, lost to a, you know, not a bomb, but definitely like a pay attention to this kind of a card, all right? So we go into sideboard, and I happen to have 15th picked this card. I'm trying to remember the specific name of it. It's, it's the equipment that gives your creatures flying, okay? Kite sail, kite sail, something, something. free cliffhaven kite sail. Yeah, cliffhaven okay. kite sail. I think maybe. that that's the card. Okay, cliffhaven kite sail, which I I did not pick by choice. Okay, this is just a card that's chilling in my sideboard because it, it was in my pool. It was like a you know last pick in in one of my packs. And someone says, hey, why don't you put cliffhaven kite sail in your deck as a way to deal with your opponent's flyer? Okay. Now, I don't want to drag this player through the mud. It's a fair question to ask, all right? Fair question to ask. You have a sideboard card. This is what sideboard cards are for, right? Is, you know, you look at your sideboard cards and you're like, what's going to be good against my opponent, okay? In the moment, what I basically said was, that card is not good enough to put in my deck, so I'm not going to play it. But I want to go into a little bit of why that card was not good enough to put in my deck and why it was not a good fit for that particular moment. And in order to do so, we need to talk about this concept that CGB brought up, which is your deck having a plan, okay? I mm -hmm. think that, tell me what your quote was, CGB. It was something like, decks need plans, not cards. Oh, I, I, I put it on here somewhere. Oh, here it is. Um, how to use a game plan to beat a deck, to beat a deck instead of playing narrow answers to beat one card. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So, yeah. And the idea, if I can just expand on it, because it's not the freest flowing sentence of all time, but you want, your, you want to have a plan for how to win the game rather than sideboarding in an answer that just barely solves one problem. What you have to ask yourself is, can you win the game in spite of that problem? If your deck has a plan to win the game, and it doesn't matter whether they resolve, in this case, a 4-3 flyer and whether or not you can block that 4-3 flyer with a creature of equal-ish power size. Uh, if you can win the game despite that, then you don't need the answer to it. Uh, you can instead play cards that forward your game plan and force the opponent to stop you instead of trying to always have the answer to everything, which, let me tell you, as a control mage, always having the answer to end everything was just like this endless quest in my magic <laughs> career that came to an end when I realized it's impossible and that no matter what kind of control deck you build, there will always be something that you can't deal with cleanly. And as a result of that, you need to have a game plan for how games will end that can basically ignore or go through certain cards. Absolutely, which I think is probably one of the reasons you've become such a Yorian mage, right? Because Yorian decks are a really great example of like, they have a bunch of answers, but they can have a very proactive game plan. You know, like if you, if you let a Yorian deck just cruise along and do what it does, they're going to pwn you eventually. So it's, it's kind of cool because I didn't even have to tell CGB anything about the scenario for him to have picked up on 
the key reason why I wasn't interested in running that card in my deck. The simple answer was that my deck was full of pretty good cards. And my deck had a plan. And the plan of my deck was to play a number of different party creatures, assemble a good board presence, and win the game through good points of interaction, through trusting that my deck was going to synergize the way I designed it to, and I also had a fair amount of removal as well. So here are my two options, right? Option A, I can be afraid of one flyer that I saw in game one, and I can bring in a card which has basically zero synergy with my deck, right? My deck was not trying to put creatures in the air. Now, sometimes people do this in limited, right? It, you usually see it when you have kind of a mediocre deck. Maybe you draft like a bunch of cheap, like um, three ones for two. You saw this a lot in the Theros Beyond Death Limited, where people would get a bunch of um, the uh, the Hellhound, whatever that guy's name was, the three one Hound that came oh. came back from the graveyard. I think it's like Raging Ra- Hellhound. Raging Hellhound, yeah. So yeah. people would have these these like Hound kite sail decks right where you just have a bunch of hounds and you'd have like the flying equipment and you were just trying to freaking get there (laughs) you know you were just trying to get your flyers into the air and just get the game over with right which was kind of uh in my opinion the only reason to have that strategy was because your draft train wrecked and this was just kind of your your try to try to get around it quick win kind of an out but this was not one of those decks my deck actually had flyers already in it Uh, But it also just had strong ground attacking forces, and I was just confident that my plan was going to work given a chance. I was also confident that my opponent's deck was not chock full of flyers, okay? Now, this is an interesting scenario. I actually had a different game in Limited, in Theros Beyond Death, where I was playing against like a, it was like a blue-white flyers deck, okay? And my opponent's deck was like mono flyers. They had a bunch of those one-two birds that made enchantments cheaper. They had some flying chimeras. It was like their whole deck was flyers. And I was looking at my gruel aggro deck with just a bunch of chonky ground creatures. And, you know, the light bulb moment went off when I was like, this Clifthaven Kite Sail is going to be the best card in my deck, okay? Because... All I need to do is play a bunch of creatures that are all bigger than my opponent's creatures, and I can just give my biggest creature flying every turn, and it's going to be a nightmare for my opponent because all of their flyers are small. They're not going to be able to get through. So in that matchup, I brought in the Cliffhaven Kite Sail. It was called something different in that set. It's the same card. Yeah. Okay, yes. I, I was going to say the Arcane Wings. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, exactly. Pretty much the same card. But in that matchup, it was fantastic because my my deck's plan was not going to be very good against my opponent's plan, all right? I was looking at my Gruul deck with a bunch of these chonky creatures, and I was thinking, if my opponent just gets some flyers down and gets a little bit of interaction, there's no way I'm going to be able to keep up with them, right? They're just going to peck me to death in the air. I don't have a good plan against them. This Cliffhaven Kite Sail is like one of the stronger ways for me to just like gum up the air and make that creatures suck. So so I brought it in and it was a fantastic card. It won me game two. It was so good that in game three, they had to bring in artifact removal to get rid of it. Okay, so that was an example of that card being really fantastic in a matchup. This matchup, it was not that. They, they were not playing a flying deck. 
I did not need to give my creatures flying, that wasn't part of my game plan. And I was confident that the deck that I had built was going to be able to do the thing it did. If my opponent was lucky enough to get like another turn for Legion Angel, and I was unlucky enough to not have an answer for it, sure, maybe I would lose in another game as well, okay? But there's a difference between your opponent running hot, getting lucky against you, and just having it, and you not having it. There's a difference between that and between needing to contort your deck into something that it doesn't want to be in order to try to have a chance against this one card that your opponent played against you. So what I want for you guys to be thinking about is not, I'm afraid of this angel and I have a card in my sideboard that can deal with it. I want you to be thinking about what's my opponent's plan? What's my plan? How do I make my deck and my plan better against my opponent's deck and their plan? All right. So we're, we're stepping outside of cards and we're stepping into the, the whole arc of a game. How does it look? What are the key inflection points? What am I actually worried about in my opponent's deck? You know, the, the kind of things that, that I get actually worried about in Limited are my opponent's curve is a lot lower than mine and they have a lot of very, very strong, aggressive creatures. Is my deck too slow? In a situation like that, what I might do is board in a bunch of cheap, mediocre creatures just so I can block, okay? Two mana, one three. Let's go. <laughs> right? Let's go. That's it. So these are the kind of things that actually keep me up at night when I'm playing limited, okay? I'm not worried about like, oh, my opponent resolved their, you know, strong flyer on curve and I didn't happen to have my my sideboarded artifacts to be able to put blockers in the air to deal with it. So that's a really solid level one approach to magic. And hopefully I've managed to clarify a little bit there. Now, uh, let's ship it over to you, CGB, and see if you can come up with another example of something that comes up a lot for your audience that you have to deal with. Sure. I'm going to start out with something that we talked about last week when I asked you to expand on being a grown-up about your sideboard and playing cards to complement your plan, not just because they're answers or just one-for-ones. And... I think that when people are getting interested in sideboarding and playing best of three magic, one of the earliest things that you do is you grab the cards that are usually narrow, but very good and very good rate. And you put them in their sideboard for, for example, I don't think, I think I went for years and every sideboard I had had duress and negate in it, <laughs> yep. you know, it, and it, and those were very good cards, but the part that took me longer to grasp was how do those complement a plan? And if I'm in a control mirror and I'm playing, uh, say, a Teferi Hero of Dominaria Esper deck against another Teferi Hero of Dominaria Esper deck, then the person who has a Teferi and gets to resolve it, use the plus one and then untap two lands, has a huge advantage. So my duress is designed to make sure that the Teferi resolves and the negate or Dovin's Veto, if you like, uh, is designed to protect the Teferi after it resolves. So... Every every hand I keep and the cards I take out and the cards I put in are designed around this plan, and so are the first several turns of the game. I don't know how many people have slammed turn one duress against me in these kind of mirrors, but I'm trying to do turn four duress or turn six duress. On turn four, you only give your opponent one more turn to locate their Teferi or locate their counterspell. On turn six, you're leading with the duress, then following with the Teferi. And that's because it keeps the windows small. 
and it keeps your plan intact up until the moment of truth, so to speak. So things like that are a good example of how you use these cards to do a plan, not just because they're good. Um, when I'm boarding, if I'm a control deck in standard right now, like a blue-black control deck, and I'm bringing negate in, into the deck, or if I'm considering whether or not to play it in a best of one, and Genesis Ultimatum Teamer is really popular, then my plan against them is that Genesis Ultimatum can end the game. It can hit Terror of the Peaks, it can hit Beanstalk Giant, I can die. So I can't let that card resolve. So if I have a negate, I'm not going to negate Cultivate or Beanstalk Giant or Stomp or whatever else is going on. Probably not even the Great Henge in some scenarios, depending what the rest of my hand looks like. It's really there to make sure I don't lose to Genesis Ultimatum. And the first several turns of the game are going to be played around that idea that I need to draw negate. I'm not going to sit there holding up an eliminate waiting for them to play a brazen borrower i'm going to play maze mine tome and use it to draw and i'm going to dig for negate because if i don't have one on the turn that they cast genesis ultimatum the game could be over so the plan so to speak against teamer ramp is to counter their big card genesis ultimatum and maneuver everything else around that um my usual wing con is ashiok minus seven casting Terror of the Peaks and Beanstalk Giant from their exile pile, which is delightful and lovely. Uh, and I encourage anyone to try it. Um, but it's, it's that idea. Like, how do I win this game? What is the plan? What is the actual end game? I'd like to use a janky best of one example of this, if I may. I, I'd love just... to. Can, can I just ask you a quick question, though? Because okay. this brings up something that I think is a really good point. Okay. Which card would you rather have in your hand versus the ultimatum matchup would you rather have a duress or would you rather have a negate at which point where where are we in the game like opening hands middle of the game let's yeah middle of the game turn four five six before your opponents had a chance to you know get all the mana down they need and they're not like a mile ahead of me on the board it's about even exactly then I would want, and, and I do think that there's arguments both ways, maybe this will be fun, but yeah. I would want the negate because the opponent could always draw the ultimatum. Yes. But if I were under pressure, if I had to play to the board and there was no way I was going to hope, it, maybe I missed a land drop, if I was going to have trouble resolving things and keeping the mana open, I would rather have the duress. Right, right. So it's situational, but I think I would also choose negate in the head-to-head, -head, and here's why, okay? Actually, there's a couple of reasons why. The first is, like you said, negate protects you against the top of your opponent's deck, whereas duress does not. But the second reason is, if I cast duress and my opponent has the ultimatum, I spent a mana and a card at sorcery speed on my turn, and my opponent just lost a card, right? So even though I, I got that maybe the best card in their hand, I'm down on the exchange overall, okay? In the other example, though, if my opponent taps seven mana to cast their ultimatum and I can negate it for two mana, that's a massive tempo swing in the game. Yeah, So, and, and to clarify on it, like just to kind of say what you said in a few different terms, this is one of the reasons that discard is not usually as good as counter magic, because if you pay one mana and use part of your mana and your turn to take a card from them, they paid zero mana essentially to play a card that got rid of a card of yours. So it's not that when you said down in the exchange, you're not talking about cards. It's a one for one, but it's a tempo loss. 
Absolutely. And and you're also forced to do it on your turn, right? Which especially for a control deck is a is a bigger cost. Uh, you know, because the whole point of most, you know, not all control decks, but a lot of control decks, you know, the big point is that you gain advantage by playing on your opponent's turn. So I just think that it's interesting to think about that, you know, like rather than just load your sideboard up with these cards that are good against control or good, you know, whatever matchup, you need to actually be thinking about when do I play this card? Why do I play this card? What's the inflection point in the game? How does it make my opponent worry? How does it limit my opponent's ability to do different things? Duress is like not, it's like, how do I say that? It's just, it's not a very good card. It can still be a fantastic card in a right matchup, but it's a very specific, it's a very specific effect. And I loved how you clarified CGB that in your Teferi deck, you're not just playing negate because it's a good card, right? Or you're not just playing it because it's good against control. You're playing it to protect your key spells on key turns. And that's why it's good. And the efficiency of it makes it better than something like negate, right? Because instead of trading for your opponent's counter spell at two mana playing your own negate, you can trade for your opponent's counter spell at one mana by playing duress before you cast the spell that you're trying to cast. So again, I love how you highlighted, I can play my Tef on turn six because it gives me access to this cheap anti-countermeasure, and then I can play my Teferi. And you know what? Worst case scenario, if my opponent has multiple counter spells in their hand, maybe I don't need to cast my Tef that turn. Maybe I leave up my mana for my own counter spell. That's an example in which the duress is going to be better than the negate. So these are the kind of decisions that you're making when you're putting these cards into your board. Okay, I interrupted you, CGB. Take it away with where you were going. I have two examples, one spikier and one's jankier. Which would you like first? Oh, <laughs> uh, give me that jank, baby. <laughs> okay, so this, this I honestly wish I could come up with a better uh, example of this situation because I've probably been through this a million times playing Magic, but this one happened to me last week. So I'm playing a mono-colorless deck. <laughs> no colored cards. <laughs> And so it's the only thing it has that interacts with the board in any meaningful way is four copies of Ugin the Spirit Dragon. All right. My opponent is playing Shrines. So uh, they've opened up with um, the White Shrine, the Black Shrine. Like they have, say, those on the battlefield. And my turn two or turn three decision is how to approach this game. I could play a Crystalline Giant which, you know, gets counters and gains various abilities and would be more mana efficient because it's turn three. Or I could play a golden egg. My hand does not include an Ugin. So the idea is, how does this game end? I don't think I can race the black shrine. It's going to be draining me and gaining life. My deck is not designed to be a beatdown deck. My deck is designed to make a bunch of mana, play Ugin, and then win. And I don't think the Shrines player will ever beat the Ugins, unless they have counter magic in their deck, which some do. But if they do, we can't beat that, you know? We can't play around that. So I played my turns very inefficiently for about six turns, when the opponent literally had me to where they could uh, drain me out with the Shrine. But... During that time, I took every draw step I could with golden eggs, every scry I could with maze mind tomes. I even like played a small, 
like a four four snake when I could have had a bigger one just so I could also draw in the same turn with Bonder's Enclave. Um, Stone Coil Serpent, that's the card. And it turned out that Ugin wasn't in the top half of my library with four copies, but it was the 29th card on the last turn before I'd lose the game. And I drew, yeah, I drew it on the very last possible turn when my opponent had all five of the shrines and the sanctum of all about to pop off. And I exiled their whole board and went on to win from there. If at any point during any one of those turns, I had prioritized playing the biggest creature, I would have lost that game. And it was because I think it was like turn two or three, I came up with the dex plan. So that's an idea of how you can put things into a best of one context when it comes to cards. And then when you're talking about building your deck and you're talking about narrow answers and how they fit into your plan, you don't want cards that can't fit into some kind of plan. You just don't want them. But uh, now having covered that, like how you play the game according to your plan, knowing how it has to end for you to be successful, now we can do the sideboard talk, which I think leans even more into yours. Do you have anything about the colorless versus shrines matchup before I move on? I I just think that's sweet. It's a it's a rivalry <laughs> for the ages. I've played it, on both sides of the matchup, and I love it. I love it. It's so. I, I think that the best thing about the story is that I would look like a total idiot if I just lost that game. <laughs> yeah. I I I, I would. Yeah. I, and that is something else. You can't be afraid to make plays that will make you look bad. If yeah. it leads to the place where you win the game and the other lines, even though they look right, don't. I yeah. I can't tell you how many times if people watch your content that they will second guess everything you do. But if you have an idea of what the plan is, you have to be willing to chase it as long as it makes sense to do so. Well, and you hear this a lot, like uh, you see it a lot with pro play where a pro will make an uncon- they'll take an unconventional line and us with perfect information as the viewers see that it's the wrong line for that point in the game and then that pro will go on to lose the game and it's really easy to be like what a fool why didn't that person just make the obvious play you know they had a questing beast why didn't they just slam it whatever right but i can't believe that a four-time pro tour champion (laughs) hall of fame player totally threw in the finals (laughs) What a joke. What a joke. Magic right? is crap. It's all random. How did these clowns get invited to this? And right. And here's the thing. It's like 0.01% of the time, you're right. That pro's just tired. They cracked. They got tilted. Whatever. But the other just vast majority of the time, it's because they're considering what's most important in the game and what they think is most important is not the thing that chat thought was really important. It's not mm-hmm. curving out. It's not, you know, um, making the obvious play. It's not trying to swing for lethal this turn. That's None of that stuff is what the pro... Like, the pro is only thinking about what is my best chance to win this game. So it's, you know, it's, it's probability, right? We're, we're not yep. talking about, like, how do I win this turn? We're not talking about... How do I make my opponent look stupid? We're not talking about how do I try to lock this game up really quickly because I hate this matchup and I want to get on to the next game. None of that stuff. You know, we're talking about what do I think is going to give me the best chance of winning this game. Okay. Uh, on that note, do you want to get into the spiky one? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the spiky one. Okay. This is another one from last week. This is me playing with a friend of mine who's preparing for competitive historic. My friend is playing 
a deck you'd like. It's Demir Yorian Demonic Pact. Oh yes, with, with four <laughs> Narsets. Yep, it's got like Narsets, Mind Stone, four Demonic Packs, a variety of counter spells, removal spells, Thoughtseize, Fatal Push, Answers. You know, it's a it's a reactive deck. Playing against Sultai Nissa, uh, Nissa Uro Hydroid Crisis. Uh, you see this all over the ladder, right? Uh, if you play Historic, and Wins game one, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, and goes to sideboard. And in the sideboard has access to all these cards. Aethergust, Negate. I think there were some mystical disputes. All these, like, sweet counters and things like that. And, of course, grabs them all, brings them all in, cuts the cards that don't look nearly as good, like Fatal Push, right? And a variety of other removal spells, like Eliminate and... Uh, all the things that just basically said kill one thing, all of those are out. The sweepers removed. So basically a counterspell game with four Aethergust into game two. And I bring up at that point, I'm like, I kind of feel like you might want Yeheni's expertise. And the the question mark, you know, was, well, what is that good against? It, it might kill a Nissa land, but you still have to deal with the Nissa. It might kill a baby Krasis. It doesn't do anything against Uro. Like, why would we want this, right? Um, so, you know, Yehenes, we, we kind of dismiss it. And by the way, we're watching the VODs at this point, looking for what we could have done differently in the matchup. And let's let's just talk about that card, because I think a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yehenes expertise, two black, black sorcery, Creatures get minus three, minus three until end of turn, and you can cast a card of CMC three or less from your hand when it resolves without paying its mana cost. Yep. Okay. Bingo. Okay. And so we're watching the VOD. So we're talking about what we could have done differently. And game two, like a Hydroid Crisis resolved. There was some back and forth. Anissa got Aether Gusted, but then resolved the following turn. This 2-2 Crisis stayed on the board the whole time and attacked Nissa's. The 3-3 land left over from Anissa one time ended up dealing a ton of damage. And we got into the mid-game, and my opponent, like, the, my opponent, the, the, the Nissa deck is out of cards, but they have, like, two 3-3s and a Crisis. And we're looking at our deck saying, yeah, there's nothing we can draw to get out of this. <laughs> There's like no way back into it. We we can draw a demonic pact and kill one of them, but we're still going to get beaten to death over the following two turns. Um, so, and then in game three, like we we look at the deck again and let's look at it with fresh eyes. We had sideboarded against a deck that did plan to attack you and your very important Narset Planeswalkers with three threes and two two bodies for the most part. We had sideboarded out everything that could kill those. We were we were a pile of aether gusts and demonic pact, but that was about it. And the opponent could definitely sideboard answers to the pact. So getting pact to resolve wasn't clear, and it might take too long. And the lesson from that was we sideboarded it into all the right reactive cards, but we had nothing for something that resolved. And our deck wanted to play things at sorcery speed. We needed Narset on the table. We needed Demonic Pact on the table. We needed to play Mindstone. So something was going to get out there. And once it was, we had no way to kill it. Yep. So as dumb as it looked, and even though it wasn't card advantage, it looked like Yeheni's expertise would have been really good for that matchup because it would play into the plan. We need to make some early plays. The opponent's probably going to get a baby Krasis and a Nissa or something like that. Yehenny's expertise can sweep up the leftovers, and then we can also put the most important card directly into play, 
uh, Narset, where hopefully it isn't getting attacked every turn. Because having the Narset on the table to keep the opponent from drawing with their Uro and drawing with their Krasis was usually the most important part of that matchup. So that's, that's an idea of the card doesn't even look right for the matchup, but it fits the plan. We had to have a plan. The plan of never die to anything with no solid removal wasn't going to cut it, right? Yeah, I, you know, to wit on this note, I just watched a matchup in the Zendikar Rising Championship, which is in process as we are recording this episode. So earlier on today, it was this really, really sweet matchup between an Azorius cycling deck featuring Drake Haven versus, uh, I think it was a Saltai deck or maybe a four-color mid-range deck, um, but basically the Nissa Krasis deck. And that was exactly how this Azorius player lost games two and three of this matchup, was that, mm-hmm. you know, they had all of these Aether Gusts, Negates, whatever in their hand, and their Saltai opponent is just like Shark Typhoon. Shark Typhoon, Shark Typhoon, eventually find the right place in the game to resolve my Nissa. And that the, the Azorius player just died to a bunch of Shark Tokens and Nissa lands. And it yeah, was cycling the, Shark Typhoon, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep, just yep. to be clear, for those who think that you just slam it on six at all times. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, the, the, the Saltai player, they had three Shark Typhoons that they drew over the, in the first like five turns of the game or something. And it was basically cycle a Shark for two, go. Cycloshock for three, go. Cycloshock for four, go. And this Azorius player was looking at their hand full of like counter spells and, you know, whatever. And they were just like, what, <laughs> what am I ever going to do against all of these tokens? So, yep, yep. Yeah, I just like to finish the thought. It's a classic example of why am I really, you know, why do I bring in negate for my control? mirrors it's not necessarily that them siding into money gates was a bad idea but it was just clearly not covering the whole plan right so it's a really really important thing to think about it's also an important thing to think about because it leads to your opponent knows how you're going to sideboard and they're going to sideboard too yes (laughs) so if if your sideboard is a bunch of negates and mystical disputes and you sideboard out wrath of god and cast out then yeah you're gonna die to a cycled shark typhoon (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> because you don't have anything to do with it, and you have a handful of counter spells, but nothing worth resolving. Right. Um, it's the classic yeah. lose to thief of sanity in game two kind of a control thing, right? You just you bought out your control. Your control opponent bods in some cheap threat that can run away with the game, and it's just over. I I think sweepers in particular are worth kind of talking about how they fit into plans because this is something that I've definitely had questions when I play competitive, when I play the competitive events, because I'm usually somebody who's going to run a Shatter the Sky if it's legal in a format, right? When I, so I'll give you like two examples. Uh, The first one is very similar to what we're talking about. I leave two or three Shatters in, in the blue-white control mirrors, because I'm expecting them to have Dream Trawlers and trying to resolve Shark Typhoons. And I expect them to try to build wide board states because they don't expect them to be threatened like they're they're going to board in more threats does that sound what do you think of that i I, because i can tell you when i when i do it people always look at me weird yeah i mean it seems unconventional you know given the the common wisdom of how these these matchups are supposed to go they're normally the first cards that you cut when you go to sideboarding because they do nothing in game one those shatter the skies but in game two i always want two or three of them 
Uh, and I'm usually talking about an 80 card, by the way, Yorian pile in current format. So it's not like two isn't as many as it might be in a 60. Yeah. But it's still, you got to have a reset button. You have to have an out to a resolve Dream Trawler because what you've got to know is your opponent, if they're running Dream Trawler, they're going to fight to resolve that Dream Trawler assuming you can't kill it, assuming you took those cards out. If you can kill it, you get the first untap step. Like, you're, you are ahead of the curve, and they fought their counters over a plan that's not going to win them the game. That's yep. a big deal. Yep. Another thing to note is that control decks are just playing a lot of creatures these days. I think Duress and Negate was better in the old control matchups where your opponent's only win con was a Teferi emblem. They might have literally no creatures in their main deck, and they might, you know, maybe they have like an Aetherling or, you know, some kind of sidestep threat in the post-board matchup that they want to run. But control decks used to be very, very creature light and very, very win con light. And that hasn't been the case for recent matters. We're seeing all these control decks full of Nyssa, Krasis, Oro, Shark Typhoon. Any one of these cards can just kill you because it's a big creature on the board chunking you, right? Yep. So you just can't, I think it's not correct in current control matchups of any kind to assume that your control opponent's win con isn't going to be some kind of creature-based, damage-based thing that eventually gets you. So, yep. yeah, you just... And you also, also on that note, I want to say, like, in the game, as far as lining things up with your plan, I'm not going to keep a hand or I'm not going to keep on top with a scry these sweepers early. Like, the plan isn't to draw them early. The plan is to draw them, like, in the middle of the game. You want to have them at the right time. So I, I just want to stress that, too. Just because I put something in doesn't mean I want it early in the game. I have a vision for how things are going to go. Yeah, and you have to be unafraid to just bottom it and think, mm -hmm. I may never see another one this game. That's probably okay. The other thing that I do that drives people nuts, I'm sure, is I, sort, I sideboard out all the sweepers against decks with a lot of creatures. The biggest example, the best example of this is if I'm playing Blue-White Yorian against Rakdos, Rakdos Midrange. Rakdos Midrange is all about getting that graveyard value, that Croxa value. And a smart player is always going to pace their threats anyway, plus killing their creatures and sending them to the graveyard is often exactly what they want. And many of their creatures, such as Bone Crusher, Giant, Croxa, Ox of Agonis, draw a card for Shatter. So they're just getting ahead and getting exactly what they want from Shatter. So even though they might build a wide board with Temerit Calls the Dead, there are two things you have to think about. Thing number one, they're not going to expect you to take out Shatter. So they're going to pace their threats because they're not a very fast deck. They're not built to beat you down quickly. So they're going to pace their threats, expecting Shatter to be there. And then thing number two, you don't want to play their game. You don't want to give them value and spend your turn sweeping the board when they want stuff in the graveyard, plan to get it back, and trigger abilities doing it. It's playing the wrong game. The game that you want to play is that they play kind of their slow, derpy threats, and you play your exile ability stuff that keeps things out of the graveyard. Glass Casket, right? Skyclave Apparition, Elspeth Conquers Death. You just want to hammer those things over and over over and over absolutely great let's move along to another example of sideboarding that i think is a little unconventional or a matchup in which what you think is the correct thing to do ends up not being the correct thing to do 
I, a couple months back, decided that I wanted to make a quick run to Mythic. I was tired of dicking around in like Platinum and Diamond playing, you know, whatever I was playing. So I decided to sleeve up Gruel Coco and just get my smash on and smash my way through Historic. And it was very effective. And one of the reasons it was so effective was that people were really, really, really bad at sideboarding against it. And this is what consistently happened, okay? My deck list was in, in key spots on the curve, okay? My deck list was running Robber of the Rich, Gruel Spellbreaker, Questing Beast. And then, of course, I had Coco as well. Collected Company. Collected Company, exactly. And this is what would happen in game after game after game, is I'd be playing against these Azorius decks, or these Sultai decks, or whatever. They were really popular on the ladder. They would see, oh, creature matchup. And post-board, they would side into every Wrath in their sideboard, every removal spell in their sideboard, every Aether Gust in their sideboard, okay? And then they would just have, like, a couple of Teferis or a couple of Nissas, you know, a couple of crises. And, and their, their plan was largely to try to interact with me, okay? Interact with my stuff on the board and maybe try to gust my spells on the stack. And I just crushed these decks game after game after game after game. And what these people weren't understanding was that my plan wasn't building a board. My plan wasn't getting a bunch of creatures down. My plan wasn't killing my opponent with creatures. My plan was dealing my opponent damage every single turn. Now, my creatures happened to be what was delivering that damage, but I had so much agency in how and when that damage was dealt because half of my creatures had haste and my deck had four collected companies in it, right? So I could play around if it was a sweeper, I could play around removal. A lot of my creatures like Gruel Spellbreaker very, very difficult to interact with if you don't counter it on the way down. And most people bought out counter spells against aggressive decks. And this is what I found is that the games I was losing were the games when my control opponent on the play would go Oro into Nyssa, into Krasis, into you're just totally dead, bro. Or even these Azorius decks, the, the times they won are the times, you know, these Bant decks, they'd go Growth Spiral into just one key piece of interaction, into Teferi, into just having a bunch of untapped mana. They were consistently beating me by resolving their powerful threats that outscaled my dorky creatures. Okay, my 2-2 Haste looks great on turn two, or maybe looks great if I hit it off of a collected company at a key point in the game, but... If my opponent has like a Teferi down and they have like a Settle the Wreckage or something like that, my stuff looks laughably bad. So this was like a big aha moment for me when thinking about sideboarding because what I realized was that there's like these conventional wisdoms about how control decks are supposed to board against aggro decks that just weren't working. It, it, you know, they were missing what was good about their deck and they were missing what was good about my deck. I always knew when I was playing against a savvy opponent because they'd keep in their threats against me because they recognized that one 4-4 Krasis was just worth like two or three of my doggy creatures. I think about this a lot when I'm building sideboards because, again, I think it was that, that thought of I'm going to take out powerful cards in my deck and bring in weaker cards to try to beat my opponent's 
you know, essentially weaker cards when what they should have been doing is focusing on staying alive long enough to resolve their spells that was so much more powerful than any of my spells and then get to a mid game where I just couldn't keep up with them. And I'm yeah. sure you've seen this a lot as a control mage, right? Well, it's uh, it's definitely something that took me a long time to get right because it do, it plays against what I love about magic. And I, I alluded to it before. It's the quest for like the perfect control deck that has answers to everything at all points. Because if you build your deck in a way that you have answers to everything, there's always... You, you kind of always have this out at the end of the game. Well, I just didn't draw cards such and such at the <laughs> yeah, right time. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so that is such an easy thing to lean into if you're a control mage. Aggro mage, there's probably an equivalent. I'm just a control mage, so it's hard to identify it. But I, I think that that is a trap. Whereas instead of having, like, if, if I got absolutely destroyed by an enchantment and i never drew my heliod's intervention i can always say well i dug like 12 cards deep and i didn't draw my heliod's intervention this game is crap i just got unlucky but i am superior deck builder control mage and i'll find it next time but if that heliod's if that heliod's intervention were a baneslayer angel that just killed the opponent instead of sitting there watching them pick you to death with, I don't know, the Black Shrine or something. <laughs> I don't know what exactly is the right example. But the idea is, what if our plan was to kill the opponent or just outscale them, outclass them with a better card? And I think that's what you're getting at with your... Um, because what I wanted to say is, when listening to that, I was like, what, what should the blue-white player do? Because our natural inclination is, oh, it's creatures, we need more answers. We need more cheap answers. And you do need those cheap answers, because what you said, the plan is to stay alive. You need the cheap answers, but then you need to have something to pl that you play that invalidates the rest of their cards. If you've ever played Teferi on a board that already has three or four creatures and just watched it, well, I guess I'll plus one and it will die, that's not the plan. That is not the plan. But Baneslayer Angel might be, because if they can't remove it, what are they going to do? They're going to attack? That thing just eats something and gains five life. And as first strike, so Embercleave doesn't, like, has to actually land on something with four power to kill it. And even then, it doesn't get the double strike. So this is a thing that I think has changed in Magic. It definitely wasn't this way when I started playing a long time ago, the boomer paper generation. Reactive deck could always sideboard in more correct answers. The aggro decks always tried to find some better threats. Nowadays, the people in the know aren't sideboarding cards. They're sideboarding plans. And the plan might be for the deck that was the control deck to have a creature that finishes the game or takes over a board state. The aggro deck might be looking for a planeswalker or an enchantment that can diversify its threats, play a longer game, and keep the cards flowing. Like that's the way magic is now. It's yeah, absolutely. The, the best players are on plan. Yeah, I would in in this gruel deck. One of my favorite sideboard strategies against control was I would bring in Clothis, mm. not mm -hmm. because it was attacking but because my opponent would tap out for a sweeper and then the next turn I'd slam Clothis and I'd be like, have fun taking two damage a turn for the rest of the game. And you're probably never gonna get your Uros back out of the graveyard either. And so that was just an example of 
doing something that's a little bit unconventional, right? Most people think of Clothis as being like an anti-sacrifice card, but I was just looking at these Azorius decks, you know, and just being like, if Absorb is your main avenue of gaining life, what if I just play around Absorb for the rest of the game, but you take two damage a turn? <laughs> like, and you'd see these these players mousing over the Clothis and just being like, crap, like, how am I going to deal with that card? What, what do I do? <laughs> yeah. So here's what a Gruul player doesn't want to see. Are you ready? Are you ready to hear the card that a Gruul player, especially one not running Embercleave, does not want to see? Elder Gargaroth. This is, yeah, this is the card. You look down at your stupid Gruul Spellbreaker and you look across the table at your opponent's Elder Gargaroth. We're not, we're not running Noxious Grasp, you know? We can't just, just get rid of that thing and just keep smashing. So that's the kind of thing that I was worried about as the Gruul Mage. I was worried about my opponent getting an Oro down. What aggro player in a matchup has ever won when an opponent escaped their Oro out of the graveyard? It's just game. It's like the death knell. <laughs> Careful careful like the youtube comments are already being typed that they did that one time <laughs> i'm i'm sure right yeah there was that one there was that one game when their opponent was at low enough life and they went wide enough and it was glorious but no there's a, there's a reason why aggro mages everywhere fear they quake in their boots at the mention of the name oro because it's cards well, like that that actually really shut down your plan it leads us to another great plan, though, because I actually saw exactly what you're talking about happen today watching the coverage, and it's because Claim the Firstborn was still in the Sacrifice uh, Player's deck. there you go. Yep. They had a plan. You make the Uro, I'm going to take it and slap you with it. Yep. Whereas normally, Claim is kind of an anti-creature card. That deck doesn't... It, it doesn't. It took people a while to find this plan. Nowadays, it's taken for granted. But when you look at Sultai, the the lands from Nissa, the Uro, and the Krasis all get claimed. But when people were first playing the matchup, people would cut claim right away because there might not be a battlefield presence for several turns in a row. So yeah, it's another example of a plan. You keep the claims in. You expect them to get Uro, but you take it and kill them with it. You you find a way to have the better plan to be the one basically it's like two hands right you're trying to get your hand on top of each other my dog loves this game i put my hand here that she puts her paw here i put my hand on her paw she moves her paw on top of my hand you want to be the one on top at the end with the good plan not the individual card so i think one of the morals of the story here is question the conventional wisdom about what seems right and when you're looking at your sideboard, don't just immediately reach for for duress, for negate. Don't be that mm -hmm. player who's just doing that. Also, when you're net decking, think like think about the meta, okay? Because oftentimes someone will release a deck that was really great last week, or this is the yep. stock build of goblins from like a month ago or something like that. And that's not the meta we're playing in right now. And you've got to, to be willing to as the saying goes, kill your darlings. This is a phrase used with writing, but it's equally true of magic. You've got to be willing to look down the deck list and say, I love this card, but it just sucks in the matter. Or there's just like this much more boring card, which is better at the moment than what I was doing before. Uh, you got to be willing to do that kind of thing. Anyway, we have spit an incredible amount <laughs> of flow here on various aspects of magic, but I hope that this has helped for you, the listener, to get a little bit of a level up and stop thinking about 
cards and answering cards and start thinking about plans and answering plans. And when you do this, your game in Magic is just going to blast through the roof. I promise you. Agreed, man. This was a lot of fun. I hope that people out there enjoyed it. Awesome. So if you enjoyed this Level Up episode, let us know. Leave a comment on YouTube or in the Discord, or you can write us an email the old-fashioned way. You can even send smoke signals. We take those too. You can find the Arena Craft Podcast on just about anywhere that podcasts are distributed. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. We are on YouTube. You can find Covert Go Blues content on the YouTube. You can also find him on Twitch. And remember again, just a quick reminder, we are doing an AMA episode, the first of its kind, on this next episode to celebrate a year of doing the Arena Craft podcast. So find a link to our Discord in the show notes, go in there, find the one-year anniversary channel, and post your next level, memorable, never-gonna-happen-again kind of questions in there. CGB, I'm stoked to hear your deepest, darkest secrets next week. Oh my gosh. First question. Why didn't you sideboard in the, the Cliffhaven kite sail against the <laughs> Legion Angel? <laughs> oh, I'm Lock ready. Lock it in. Lock it in. <laughs> First person who asked that question. No, I'm not, I'm not going to incentivize this nonsense. Nonsense. It's, it's already done. It's already done. The axe has fallen. I will look forward to your only the best, only the top shelf questions next week on the Arena Craft Podcast. Later.